No, no, what I will do is I will cut it in isolation and put it at the very start of the episode without any context at all, because that's what I like to do to my guests. <laughs> and then the theme tune will hit. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor and enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Good to be with you all. Elliot Morgan. Hello, everyone. Adam Smith. And it's the return of the one and only Andrew Jeffrey. Good evening. Good to be with you. Now, today we're going to focus on learning objectives. But first, Neil, what are you reading for? What you reading for? So I'm revisiting something that I knew there was a lot of information about this particular subject. So I've done my best to kind of read around as much as I could. And that's going back to Dylan Williams' Embedded Formative Assessment book, which is one of those texts that I believe was always on the university uh, to read list. And no doubt I bought the copy because I had a copy of it. Uh, probably didn't read it as much as I should have done on the university course. Um, but no, just really good stuff about formative assessment. That's going to be really helpful for the rest of this chat and is well worth uh, well worth everyone uh, having a copy of just to dip in and out of um, to look at all things in formative assessment. Elliot, what are you reading for? Neil's actually stolen mine because I also revisited the, that chapter from, from that book. So uh, there'll probably be a bit of overlap in what we say. I'm, actually, I'm kind of jealous that was on your university uh, reading list because our reading list that you knew was more like how to teach mathematics in the outdoors and stuff like that. So anyway, um, I recently just finished, though, uh, Daniel Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School? I know incredibly late to the game there, um, but I found chapter two particularly to be incredibly useful. Anybody who's sort of in the process of designing a curriculum I think it's um, essential reading. He's, there's, he's got those tidbits in it that's like factual knowledge, proceeds skill and background knowledge, aids comprehension and, and so on and so on. What about you, Adam? What are you reading for? Well, I am reading... Um, well, I've got something I'm actually reading and then something I wish I was reading. So I'm reading uh, The Evidence and Rationale Behind the Step Lab Approach, uh, which is a white paper that's been put out uh, by Ariel Bogoslav and Josh Goodrich because this weekend, myself and Lloyd uh, William Jones, we went to the Steplab conference uh, near Waterloo Station, um, and it was really, really, really good uh, hearing about instructional coaching and <clears throat> the ways that it can be delivered in schools. Uh, and one of the sessions there was Josh Goodrich, who set up Steplab, that used to be called Powerful Action Steps. And it was kind of a preview of a book that he's writing at the moment called Responsive Coaching, that hopefully is going to be out uh, in uh, the next year. And it's going to be like, I know we say things are a game changer all the time, but it's going to be a game changer. It's really, really good. Um, love that. And then in the meantime, I'm reading this white paper. So to kind of back up there, the way that they're uh, encouraging schools to do instructional coaching, they've, they've put together this really thorough research paper. And as much as I love reading the paper itself, it's one of those cases where the 
um, references are just as valuable as the paper. It's like a really nice summation of all the, the research that's gone into um, instructional coaching. And so the references are really good. So I know that's going to inform what I'm going to be reading over the next uh, couple of weeks into the summer holidays. Um, Andrew, what are you reading for? I am. Uh, I'm reading uh, this book, Make, Making Every Math Lesson Count by uh, Emma McRae. I had the, the pleasure of uh, ah, some nods there of uh, working with Emma um, at a, a conference in the Midlands recently. And, uh, and she's got some great ideas um, and she comes from a kind of secondary perspective. Um, uh, but uh, I think a lot of the ideas such as, you know, challenge and making, I'm really interested in her idea about making a skill very explicit at the moment. That's as far as I, I haven't got very far into it, but she was kind of kind enough to give me a copy. And, and I, I yeah, I just, uh, it's kind of, it's good and bad because um, I was going to do lots of work on the train, but I ended up not. And it's a, it's one of those books that you can dip into. You know, there are some that you've got to read front to back and there are some that you can kind of dip into like a sort of menu or an art gallery. And this feels like the latter. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of enjoying that. Can I can I have a what I wish I was reading? Like, Adam, is that right? As you have one of those. Uh, I wish I was reading the play script of A Few Good Men. Uh, <laughs> so I listened to an Adam Sorokin interview the other day and I heard he wrote it on cocktail napkins while he was a bartender. And that's kind of, uh, you know, you can't handle the truth is kind of one of, one of the great lines. And uh, he wrote it on a cocktail napkin. I kind of love that. I just think it tells me something about the writing process that sometimes we write uh, and it's not nice and orderly. You don't sit down and say, I'll write and have a coffee at nine and write till 10. Sometimes the best ideas come to us at different times. So yeah, for, for a totally different reason, that's what I wish. Karen, what you, uh, what you reading? Yeah, that, that's so true because sometimes you'll be as far from a pen as possible and uh, divine inspiration will come to you and you think, how quickly can I get back to my notepad or my computer so I can write it down? So I totally get that. I have been reading a blog by Jamie Tom. I think it's on his slow teaching blog and it's called An Introvert's Guide to Public Speaking. And anyone who's ever spent much time with me will know that introversion is my sort of default mode. And it, it, it talks about how in his book, Acquired Education, he sort of elaborates on how introverts can be really effective public speakers. And he outlined some key points as to what he thinks is, is important for public speaking and shows how that can marry up. And he says that he talks more about inacquired education. So I reckon I'm going to probably read that because I do think that introverts can and should be really good public speakers and really good teachers as well. Because sometimes it feels like, you know, it's the, the, our profession is the domain of the, the extrovert when actually that's not 100% uh, true because I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be a... Uh, 15 years in the classroom if uh, if it were so this week we're going to explore learning objectives and i think my first question i'm going to throw it to you elliot but then we can bounce it around until we've got a really sort of robust definition what is a learning objective i would say that a learning objective is something that tells the learner uh, what it is they're going to be learning about or what it is they'll be able to do at the end of a lesson um, as a result of the um, their interaction with your instruction as a teacher or the task that they've completed. Um, and it may even um, sort of outline the conditions in which they will do so, like to write a paragraph or something like that. Um, but I also think it, it's not just a tool for uh, pupils, it's also a tool for teachers because it helps to guide their instruction and planning. I think from... Uh... 
my university days where it was very much learning objective, heavy teaching. That's a, a very good, straightforward analysis of what we term um, learning objective. I'm very happy with that definition. I think there's there's also the manifestation of like the learning objective in the classroom. Uh, when I knew that we were talking about this, I kind of thought, where do we see it? So it might be written as a title in children's books. It might be on the lesson plan. It might be on the PowerPoint. It might be for the teacher. It might be for the student. It might be for an outside observer. It might be for someone else if you're doing the planning. So I think for me, the lesson object, the learning objective is um, something that students might write in their book or have in their booklet. But yeah, there's an ex that, that might be an interesting discussion is like, who is it for? Um, because I like the idea that it's for students that they can understand and, and look back and see progress um, through how they've achieved certain learning objectives over time. Yeah, to, well, yeah, I'm really nervous about my floodgates here because um, I, I, yeah, I, I saw the questions you're going to ask today and, and my, my kind of my first response to what is a learning objective was was not printable but my second response was a bit more grown up and it was um it was a hopeful paradoxical wish so i'm going to say it's a hopeful paradoxical wish and and hopeful because that's that's kind of the easiest one like i hope i really hope this is what someone else will learn um wish because that's kind of um you know, it is it is a wish list. I think a lesson plan is a wish list, but it's that it's part of a lesson plan, and and paradoxical in that if I have an objective, then only I can really set myself an objective, and yet students aren't given the chance to set their own objectives. Um, if in this context, in the context of a a lesson objective, um, and I've I've heard in the past quite sort of sweeping generalizations like. Um, well, how are they supposed to learn anything if you don't tell them what they're supposed to learn? And I think I've learned loads of things, you know, like um, uh, don't don't eat chips near a seagull. Uh, but nobody nobody told me that I was supposed to learn that. I, you know, I managed I managed to learn that through the situation. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I think I think paradoxical in that I don't believe personally that um, the objective that the teacher sets is necessarily what the child is going to learn. And also, I don't necessarily think that's, a, it, that's always a bad thing. I mean, I, I guess we can all think of examples where our, some of our kids have gone, oh, and we've kind of gone, oh, great, but I didn't realise you didn't know that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so there, there is a certain paradox in there, you know, who, who sets the objective and should, should does it mean anything if I set an objective for someone else? And, you know, after 30 years in the classroom, I'm still wrestling with that one, if I'm honest. But I, I love thinking about the question. Yeah, I think it probably frames this conversation quite well because, you know, from listening to sort of your shared and combined definitions. It's not immediately clear, you know, and my, my second question is, what is the, the point or the purpose of learned objectives? And I hopefully will we'll be able to tease out as we go through what that might be. And, you know, because I, I'm almost convinced that you can ask two teachers and get two totally different interpretations of what was supposed to be happening. So maybe let's see if we can come to some sort of uh, consensus, you know, just see where the conversation takes us. So, I mean, 
Adam, what what is the point or the purpose of learning objectives? I guess part of what we do when we teach, so I'm thinking about using like a high quality math textbook, for example, we might have this like overall idea that children should become fluent in mathematics. And then we sort of divide that down using the national curriculum into certain year groups. So we say by the end of year, or by the end of key stage one, they should be able to do X, Y, and Z to meet the expected standard, year six, same year nine, and on into GCSE. So we then subdivide that down. And then we say, okay, well, if we're going to meet the expected standard at year in year two, here's what we need to start laying the foundations for in reception, same for year six. So we, we gradually start with a massive chunk, break it down, break it down, break it down. And for me, a learning objective is um, a useful way of breaking that down into lesson sized chunks. So I think learning objectives should be very straightforward and I think they should be achievable, like, like visibly achievable if we're going to use them. I ultimately don't, I think almost the term is so tarnished that it would be better to call it something else or it would be better to refer to it as, you know, uh, the purpose of a lesson or something like that. But say, for example, teaching maths today, I wanted my students to be able to round to um, numbers from two and one decimal places to zero decimal places. Um, and that was an achievable learning objective for my students. And it was simple and it was straightforward. And I could look in their books and see from by the end of doing independent practice that they'd achieved it. And I knew at the start of the lesson how I was going to model it, scaffold it, do some guided practice on it, and then have that achieved by the end of the lesson. So I guess really utilitarian from my point of view, just as a unit of learning, just as breaking it down into a lesson sized unit of learning, and then again, breaking it down further within the lesson. So it's probably quite a boring answer. So sorry for that, <laughs> but um, it's a utilitarian answer. No, and it, it wasn't boring at all. And, you know, so you're almost one in the camp of it's for the teacher because it helps them organize the journey in their head. I mean, I, I saw you nodding, Andrew. What were you thinking whenever you were listening to Adam speaking? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, yeah, I think it's for the teacher. I think I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's for the teacher. I don't think I, I don't think it's for the student as much as the teacher. I think it really helps the teacher frame what they're going to do. Um, but you know, we you'd have to be a, an incredible mind reader to know what thirty different people are going to learn. Because <laughs> it's it sure as heck won't be that, that every single one will learn the thing that you wrote, you know, next to the short date, you know. Uh, so I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Adam there. I think that's a, a really useful um, way to think about it. It's a tool to help the teacher. I mean, not having an objective for your lesson, that's a disciplinary offence, you know. <laughs> Surely you should know what the content and what the big ideas are for that lesson but but yeah so but any any as I, as I risk of repeating myself but i'm just going to say yes i i agree that uh, it is a far more useful thing it's almost like a list of topics and concepts as much as a learning thing i think so yeah i'd, I'd go along with that quite happily yeah yeah i think i'd to not make this episode you know even more boring but uh, i agree as well i think that's so much more useful for the teacher because it just provides you the, uh, a, a mental model, a conceptual framework within the parameters that you actually want to teach the students in that particular lesson, obviously fully well knowing that half of them again will probably will not um, learn what you expect them to learn because that's not the way these things work. 
so definitely useful for the uh, the adult. And again, I think you need to make sure you ideally, again, with something like mathematics, you'll find your learning intentions from a, a scheme of work, or, sorry, your learning objectives from a, there's your other word for it, Adam. That's what I would grew up with. It was always the learning, the learning intention. It was the LI. We were very much team LI, not team LO when I was <laughs> training and all of this stuff. But definitely, you know, you want to make sure that you have those and they're you know, of vaguely high quality stuff. I'm sure we'll get into the conversation of what makes a what makes a good one and what makes a bad one. But you'll definitely kind of want them before planning, so you know the parameters with which you're working on within that lesson, so you know how to you know where your main focus needs to be, and that transcends you know all subjects. But that's what it's there for, so that you know. And if you're in a multi-form entry school hopefully then your uh, partner teacher teachers know what is going to be happening in that lesson if you have to do some joint planning and it kind of gives them that parameters of where that lesson is then going on i mean you say boring but i i do think it's important that we establish the point of them because i dread to think how many newly qualified early career teachers have wasted time trying to work out how they should write a learning objective because it can be different in one school from another and that's missing the point and it's focusing on the on the wrong stuff you know so i think if we could have this shared understanding across the profession that here is the the reason we do this and here is why it might be useful you know i you know that that can never be boring you know so you know don't uh, don't sell us or yourself short like going back to the sort of central question of like what is the purpose of them intuitively it just seems sensible doesn't it that if, pe if people like that people should know what they're learning and that the more clearly we communicate that to them perhaps the more likely they are to then go and learn it uh, and like we could as well believe the opposite to be true that the more confusing the learning objective is then the less likely they are to learn it um so yeah ultimately as everybody said they learn objectives help to frame the learning for the teacher and the pupil because learning is a sort of goal-directed activity we're trying to take pupils from a to b whether that be within an individual lesson or across a unit so for the teacher it, it informs their instruction and the pupil it sort of guides their effort and thinking and i say it sort of like frames their learning because and as um andrew alluded to like learning can and will occur without los or with them it, learning isn't reliant on there being an LO that's presented at the start of a lesson with three success criteria and so on. To, to sort of hop back to Adam's point about like, who is it for? Well, it, they're like, I see learning objectives as sort of a, a means through which to assess. So like from a summative standpoint, they're for the teachers to help us to see if a learner has understood a, a lesson or not. But from a sort of formative um, standpoint, they help the, the learner in the moment to guide their understanding. It helps them to go and understand. Um, but I, I think that's only true if a teacher is built up a sort of very specific culture around how the learning objectives are used in their lessons. I'm not convinced that with very, very young pupils that it would have that effect, but perhaps with older secondary pupils, um, it could. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say it's definitely for both the teacher and the pupil. Yeah, Neil's point was great about um, uh, uh, worrying and your point about about worrying about, um, you know, what, what how should I frame it? Um, I, I think that's broadly true in a lot of stuff that early career teachers feel they have to do um, uh, in order to um, get myself in trouble here. But in, in order to uh, to fit in with the culture of the school, um, which is based on that particular ideology, um, you know, I mean, the number of the number of 
forms that we have to fill in and amount of data that we have to submit. And in, in the best schools, that's used to uh, inform next steps. But in, <laughs> in quite a lot of schools, I suspect it's used to conform, not inform. Uh, and if we could spend less, you know, less time proving and more time improving, I think we'd be a lot, a lot better off. So I think if we are, if we're doing learning objectives because we have to, because we have to do them in this way or that way, because that's how somebody high up in our organisation believes we should do them, then we're less likely to, um, uh, to get the benefit, you know, this, you know, Wolves is saying, you know, that, that there is benefit, the older the pupil, the, the more benefit maybe there is from, from being explicit. Although I suspect we'll find out later on, not always, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think if we can, if we can spend time improving rather than proving and justifying, I think, I think the world will be a happier place. So I'll get back in my box now. Also, when we think about purpose, certainly as when I was a teacher, not in any leadership position, I did kind of feel half the time the purpose was to actually, it was used for leaders to triangulate, you know, my teaching. Was I doing the right thing? Was I teaching the things? And the way, because we'd have to, you know, you'd have some real, really long le um, learning objectives, which I don't think are particularly useful um, the, for the pupils to know. I would definitely want to know if I am going to be doing uh, mental addition bridging through 10 uh, with year three, for example. What I don't, what is the purpose, therefore the purpose is not that 15 minutes of my you know, 40 minute mental math lesson is spent the children and literally have to write out, uh, you know, LO to, br <laughs> to bridge through uh, 10 when adding. But, you know, we were, say we, I was certainly uh, coming up through education at the point where, you know, children would have to write that learning objective down in their book because if it wasn't and the maths leader did a, a book look or you know, a book scrutiny uh, I'd be picked up the fact that there's no you know learning objective you know the students definitely don't need to write that all out if you're desperate for a, a title or something like that to because you need to prove disprove that you are actually teaching children then just get them to write addition down. There's no need. The fact that they write that down, uh, you know, there's no resemblance to what they're, they won't learn it any better because they've written it down. And actually, you know, you could actually find, you know, 10 more minutes worth of practice by get, not getting them to write, you know, tens of words down, whatever it might be. So when we think about the purpose again and the point, not something for the children, certainly not something to, prove to management something for the teacher to know so they know what they are doing at that point in that learning sequence well i think we'll talk about it a bit later but about the the time input versus the purpose so for me i'm fully willing to say that it's for my own uh, benefit that uh, i have these learning objectives because i like to be able to see uh, in a book what we were doing at any particular time and if there's a book scrutiny it provides useful context for me and for leadership to be able to say, well, look, in this lesson, we were doing this particular, this was the particular outcome that we were aiming for. Um, but I teach up a key stage too. So that's not really a massive issue in terms of the time input. It's not not an issue because uh, I think I read somewhere earlier, it might be David Didal's blog, that it takes, if it takes three minutes a lesson to write, hand write a learning objective, then it's, it actually adds up to 50 
uh, hours a year or 10 full school days, basically, uh, a year. So it's quite a big time input. And the benefit of that, we'll get on to talking about it later, is is probably decreases massively. And, and one of the reasons why this was a big fad um, sort of back in the, I don't want to call it the dark age, but back in uh, kind of 2007, that sort of mid and early 2000s period, uh, is because I think people did perceive it as being a benefit to the students. Like they did think that this was something that provided clarity to students on what they were working on, or it helped students to understand like their learning journey or whatever it was. And I think now we should be open and honest and say, look, if we're writing learning objectives, then we're doing it for the benefit of organization, which I think is fine. I think it's fine to aspire to have organized exercise books with neatly written dates and titles. Like I'm not a teacher who thinks that that is a waste of time. I think that's a good skill for students to learn. Uh, and we're doing it for the purpose of context so that when we do uh, book looks and scrutinies or whatever it is, that that is the, that, that represents what's actually happening in the classroom and maybe for accountability. Um, we want to make sure that uh, if we say to teachers that you have to teach this entire textbook, that we can look back through, um, say, a maths journal or uh, a history exercise book and, and check to make sure that all those lessons have been taught in the correct sequence. Yeah, as long as we're open and honest about that being the purpose and not trying to make out as if getting um, a year four student to write, you know, I can identify the uh, the parts of a sentence da, 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 is going to somehow actually improve their ability to do that later on in the lesson i think that's um not helpful we have a textbook in place that provides pupils with a pupil book and so there isn't actually a space for them to write the an objective even if we wanted them to there is space for the date but almost without anyone realizing we sort of phased out the need for like Neil says about um, having to spend 10 minutes of your of your day writing things out. So I do think your point's pretty important, Adam, in terms of if it's a bureaucratic decision or a big picture decision, then potentially, you know, we can use it. But I do think it is possible to not have them formally written down anywhere and but still have a focus for the lesson or a purpose for the lesson and um, like we uh like we've mentioned i think in that scenario um it is a real benefit of so we use maths no problem maths no problem doesn't have a learning objective it just has a title for each lesson and i actually the only lesson i actually write get students to write learning objectives in is english because that's when they use their exercise book we're a very booklet heavy school so in every other lesson there is a learning objective but it's already pre-printed if I was, and I might even potentially think about doing this next year, but if I, we, obviously all of our planning is then done really far in advance. So even if we were using exercise books, I would consider having almost like a contents page of like lesson one, lesson two, lesson three pre-printed with what those lessons are going to be about to avoid the need to write a title. Obviously that restricts your ability to be flexible and uh, you would have to kind of maybe be flexible towards the end of that scheme or just accept that that is going to change and you're not going to necessarily strict, strictly stick to it, but it might be a solution to have a sort of pre-printed list of objectives. And you might even be able to like 
I'm just going few full like nerdy bureaucrat here. Like this is the kind of thing that I love. You could even like have L lesson one to six, and they literally just write L one in their books, and then it refers back to it. And then if you do any kind of interstitial lesson, so if you do anything that slots in between those, or if you repeat a lesson or a lesson goes over, you just write like L one A, or you can write a new learning objective in. Okay, so there we go. There's some a way to save time actually physically writing a learning objective. I mean that that's certainly more bureaucratic than I would be. I essentially say to my teachers, and that's not, not necessarily a bad thing, it's just different. And um, I say, okay, all right, we're going to start in December of year one. You're going to finish in February of year six. Here's the start, here's the end. Off you go. And then, you know, when we're having our transition meetings at this time of year, I'm saying, okay, well, where are we going to start? Well, we're not necessarily going to start place value in September. We're going to start where you left off at the end of year, you know, say you're going to do year four, well, where, where'd you finish year three? Because then, you know, that way you do have that flexibility. But I, I do understand that in in certain parts of my um, professional life, I do like that kind of control and that and that detailed oversight. You know, so I'm not, I'm not saying that as a, you know, you're wrong, Adam. It's more a case of, you know, this is an alternative. I hope it didn't come across like that. <laughs> I do, I'm, I'm desperately upset now. I mean, the, the fact of not teaching place value in September, I think my head might fall off. Oh, dear. <laughs> Place value. I think they should change the name of the month to place value month. Just let's just get it out of our system. <laughs> so I think we're probably about halfway through the episode. And so at this point, I'd like to thank everyone who supports us on Kofi because they've been able to provide us with this uh, this wonderful uh, sort of podcast recording studio, you know, that we've that we're in virtually now. And hopefully you will see better audio quality, better video quality on your end. But I can tell you at the moment, it's a bit of a struggle <laughs> to see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but yeah, but no, we really appreciate you and um, everyone who listens. Um, and obviously, if you do want to support some coffee, lots of behind the scenes stuff and uh, extra CPD for people um, if they want to engage that during the, the summer. So then the next question, Andrew, I wrote specifically based on having listened to you speak in the past. And my question is, is there ever a case for not sharing the learning objective with pupils? If ever you thought you were being set up, <laughs> that's that famous lawyer, isn't it? Have you stopped beating your wife? Yes or no? Um, well, I, yeah, you know jolly well. I mean, I've, I've actually had the privilege of, of teaching a lesson in your school, Kieran, uh, in the in the relatively recent past, uh, and you'll be you'll be acutely aware that I chose not to share the learning objective. Um, which, uh, not that it matters, but was was all about um, uh, efficient ways of, of adding commutatively. Um, and our, in that particular lesson, the, the quickest way to ruin the lesson would have been to share the learning objective. Um, so, uh, yes, is my emphatic answer. Um, the the less, I mean, that particular lesson in question just came to mind was... Um, that there were, the children had to add up some numbers as quickly as they could. Uh, and in one case, it was the numbers one to 10. And as they were coming into the room, if you probably recall, I gave them 10 playing cards with the numbers one to 10 and asked them to add them up. And I was walking around the room, seeing whether anybody was putting them into pairs. Um, so that that kind of informed my, uh, the, the route that I would take. Almost like a sat-nav um, says in live time, oh, this route would be quicker or this route would be slower or there's a, a traffic jam here. 
Um, and I did actually notice one uh, couple of children that, that put the cards into pairs and, and that sort of informed the route I was taking. So, yeah, the short answer is 100 percent. There are some times when lesson design is improved by not sharing your objective. Yeah, for sure. I 100 percent agree. Uh, it's one of the bits in that Dylan William book, um, Embedded Formative Assessment, that he mentions how in what he saw, which is very much uh, American-based observations, but I think there are definitely parallels over to here in England, this idea of very much like wallpaper uh, learning objectives, where it was very much, it's on the board, when the kids come in, they write it down, well, like we just talked about, and then he goes in to say, well, actually, you know, sometimes, particularly I think with like mathematical problem solving, if you're saying, oh, you know, today we're going to solve problems uh, with the, uh, area of a triangle well then actually you know you've taken a lot of that learning away from them because you've told them straight away you know you're going to have to use the area of the, tri the formula for the area of the area of a triangle to work these problems out how much more richer and fuller would that lesson have been if you know here are some problems take 15 minutes you know see if you can work them out what do you notice all of that kind of thing and then introduce the learning objective you know right we need to for some people that might be that oh, okay right that's the problem that they need to then go on and have a look and you know, be able to solve it. Some of them, you know, some students might say, oh, we have, I've done two of these problems already and I've had to use the uh, formula for working out the area of the triangle on it. So is that what we're doing today? So I definitely think going straight in with the, you know, this is the learning objective of the lesson first thing can definitely, uh, you know, spoil that learning journey that you are trying to uh, create for those pupils. There's also a case for not sharing them when they're just, poorly written or just poorly used so um neil mentioned the dinner william book earlier embedded formative assessment and i'm just going to sort of touch on a couple of things that are in that book so shirley clark talks about the idea of that sometimes learning objectives get confused with the context of learning in, in which they're being used so um like a common sort of uh, learning objective you might see at primary is something like um to write instructions on how to pump up a bicycle tire and it's like the actual learning objective there is to understand how to write instructions. The bicycle tire is just the context in which it's being taught. And by putting it in there, sometimes the pupils can, can get, can confuse their learning with thinking it's just singular and to that context. And obviously that can be troublesome when we want to facilitate transfer long term. And I think Dillian William also talked about the idea of wallpaper objectives, the idea that you just show it at the start, as, as Neil said, and then never really touching it again. In my mind, that's kind of pointless. It, referring back to it is going to make it much more uh, impactful for learning. Anyway, that's that's bang on. In that, that book you mentioned earlier about why don't uh, students like school, uh, Willigan talks about this brilliant example where um, his, uh, his students are measuring the area of their desktop in the classroom and uh, they finish. And by way of, um, in quotes, extension, unquote, the teacher says, OK, so now what about the football field? You know, and they go, we haven't, we haven't done football fields. <laughs> and, and so they, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? It's kind of completely, well, I, I thought we were talking about desks. You know, they have completely failed to understand that the objective was rectangular areas. And, you know, the amount of flat squareness is what constitutes an area, regardless of size. So that's kind of really reminded me of that, that, that brilliant book you talked about earlier. I, th I think at the heart of it, you know, some of the, the most profound truths, a really well-crafted sequence by the teacher, 
allow the truths to reveal themselves. You know, if we think about, um, you know, I always talk about um, Watson and Mason and their non-Euclidean circle. And they, they, they sort of convinced these teachers that they were making a straight line, but actually, no, it was, it was making a, a circle um, in taxicab geometry, you know. And if I think about Andrew, whenever we see you with the algebraic reasoning, you know, particularly at MathConf 29, um, and we sort of read maths, where the envelopes and the idea of knowns and unknowns, if you tell a pupil, right, today we're going to learn about unknown quantities, um, you know, that's not going to mean much. But actually, the four or five steps you take the adults in the room through, they just sort of all these connections start pinging at the same time. You can see it on their faces. I know certainly whenever I saw, you know, the first time I was like, oh, my goodness, yes, that makes so much, so much sense. So I think if you if you do um, say at the start, right, we're going to learn about algebra, you probably lose half the class. and. Uh, and 100% of the, you know, the magic, and no pun intended, um, in in the in the lesson. And I think it definitely applies outside of mathematics. But I think lots of us in this on this call sort of default to uh, the most important of the subjects. Maybe it's the romantic in me, but you know, if I wanted to convince you to climb a mountain with me by telling you the view would be awesome, to show you a photograph of the view beforehand would would feel as kind of like a bit counterintuitive, really. You know, I want, I want you to enjoy the the, the climb, uh, as Miley Cyrus would convince us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. If if, if I saw of you, I, I might not be as eager to climb a mountain um, afterwards. So, I mean, all this considered, Adam, how can we improve the cost-benefit ratio that's sort of inherent within learned objectives? Again, I am very much like this is for the purpose of teachers, bureaucracy, leadership, organization, not of a great import to students. So wherein the benefit is clearly, sorry, wherein the the cost is really eating into lesson time, it, children aren't drilled in this, the routines aren't in place for this, the um, quality, like the, the tidiness of it, you know, for me, part of that start of year routine is like look we orient our title on the left hand side of the page and our date on the right hand side of the page we underline them neatly with a ruler i reckon i can get my entire class to write the date and title in maybe a minute and a half two minutes don't come to my classroom with a stopwatch and check that but um it's you know it's pretty speedy uh by year five and year six so that to me isn't a great concern but certainly if i was a year two teacher and someone was asking me to write lengthy multi-word um learning objectives i would say that there is a, a huge cost benefit issue there so uh stickers I, this is i i don't know um you know i'm sure you will have opinions on this pre-printed stickers i have no issue with them whatsoever um if you can do them quickly so for example like um you know, uh, the start of the year is coming. I've already done all my book labels for next year in like a nice, they all look, they all look lovely and uniform because I'm a nerd like that. And I want everything to look lovely and uniform on the front of books. And if we didn't have mass textbooks, I would happily print out a date and LI on a little sticker to go in books. And I would get my students like trained into a routine of like, you know, take a sticker, pass it back, take a sticker, pass it back, stick it in something along those lines. But I'm sure that that is very it feels faddy it feels like a callback to um 
you know, to yesteryear having LI stickers, but maybe it's actually the future. Maybe it's where we go from here, especially as technology um, improves. Although technology may improve, but printers don't seem to improve. Um, I think printers are as bad now <laughs> as they've ever been. So to improve the cost benefit ratio um, for land objectives, I think I've sort of come sort of three sort of separate areas come to mind. Um, so firstly, um, using them for assessment. If you are going to use them where children uh, self-assess or peer assess, make sure that children, you do you explicitly teach the assessment process before you get to do so, especially with young children. They're just going to tick it and say that they have met it. Um, if you're using them with older pupils, have dedicated feedback sessions after the lesson where you go back and revisit the learning objective and, and talk about whether pupils have been successful or not and, and put that responsibility on pupils for the self-checking and, and, and editing and so on. The second one is differentiating i wouldn't i would advise against differentiating learning objectives i think that just presents a huge workload issue and it also ends up leading to very ambiguous learning objectives across a single lesson uh, instead think about how you differentiate the level of support you give and then finally touching on what you alluded to earlier kieran don't use really complicated language or get bogged down uh, in terminology i think when i think back to being in secondary school in sort of the early 2000s i think bloom's taxonomy it was like a was back at its height and we had these very like overly specific verbs like to be able to refine or to analyze um, and, and it made learning objectives very skill heavy and perhaps more sort of student-centered than was necessary and I, I don't think we need to worry too much about that because as Andrew said earlier the learning can occur learning objective or not it's just there as a sort of frame of reference for the learning overall so don't, don't get too bogged down in, in those learning objectives and then sort of lastly Leaders, don't worry if learning objectives aren't in books. Learning can still occur, as we just said. And um, alongside using a learning objective, I think it's quite useful to make it clear what successful learning looks like in that lesson against that learning objective, because it can act as sort of like a tool of uh, immediate feedback for pupils. I think to increase, I say, the cost benefit of them, don't write them down in books. I think, you know, the title is more than adequate if you're, learning adverbs you don't need to write you know uh, to use adverbs of manner um lo to use adverbs of manner in the sentence correctly you know just write adverbs of manner it's, it'll be pretty it should be pretty clear from the outcome what's actually happening uh in that lesson i don't really buy them as a particularly useful tool to kind of hold teachers account to in terms of you know what they've been attempting to teach the the children i think what we can also kind of do is kind of make sure that they are uh, process focused and not product focused. And what I mean by that is that I see many learning objectives that confuse the particular task with the particular objective, which I don't think is particularly useful because it goes back to you know why you write if your lo is to write a letter well you know you're going to have written a letter in the book so it should be pretty clear that you've written a letter you don't need to then write you know our learning objective is to write a letter uh you know your learning objective for there is thinking about well what actually skills have you or what bits of writing procedural knowledge have you taught the children so that they can actually apply what they've learned in perhaps in the context of a letter. So if, uh, if you had to have a learning objective that in the teacher's head, it should be, you know, right, to apply the skills of you know, 
confronted adverbials and subordinate clauses at the beginning of a sentence uh, in the context of letter writing. But obviously that then is still you know, far too much for actually the children to write down. And it's something that I do see kind of quite often this idea, you know, we get that, that our learning objective gets confused with the task itself. I'm far happy with the idea of going back to the example that I used earlier. Um, I may want to teach, uh, you know, mental uh, addition through uh, bridging through 10. But equally, you know, by doing that, that is the task, you know, my actual learning objective for them is to be able to add two digit numbers effectively or two digits and one digit number effectively using that particular method. So I would say just be really clear that they are process focused and not product focused. That's the focus of a big part of your task design talk, Elliot, is what should people who are interested in what Nia's just said be reading? There's something sort of yeah similarly linked to that, which is by Wiggins and McTie, which is the twin sins of curriculum design. And I think it's yeah one is being activity focused, so you're um, perhaps too focused on what the task is like and how engaging it is. And the other uh, sin I believe is uh, being too coverage focused, so trying to get through content really quickly simply because you have a curriculum that you have to get through, and, and it's at the expense of any sort of depth. Yeah, that's wonderful. That that reminds me of something I wrote down earlier, which is a really powerful quote from uh, Caleb Gatenio, um, who said, the power to learn rests primarily with the learner. So actually, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we look in the mirror, we should stop lying to ourselves and stop calling them learning objectives and start calling them teaching objectives. But actually, um, I don't know, listening to what you guys just said there, I wondered about well, I wanted to say many things. It was so sort of thought provoking. But can we can we get rid of it all and just and just have the lesson with which is called today's big idea colon, which allows you to make your own meaning from it and your own sense. But again, always with that underpinning, you know, that Adam started us off quite rightly with. We need to know what we want them to know, but it is at best what we hope they will, you know. Uh, that was fascinating. Honestly, there's so much there. I, I, I often say to, to schools and, and to heads, you know, think about all the procedural stuff that happens in your school. At every school, there are thousands of little things on there. But I, I've always asked myself two questions. Do they improve attainment? And or do they improve well-being? And if you can't answer yes to at least one of those questions and maybe both, you really need to consider why you're doing it. And, and and I think that's that's not to say that we shouldn't have, you know, a, a, some kind of objective. Of course we should. Um, but, but Neil's idea about, you know, is are you thinking about an objective or actually thinking about an outcome? You know, it's, and it's outcomes. Is, it's, it's, are, are, is there something we know that we didn't know before? Is there something we can do that we couldn't do before? Is there something that we understand on a deeper level? You know, I think all of those things are important, but sometimes we can make progress without showing progression. Like I can feel more confident on this rung of the ladder than I was before, but I'm still on this rung of the ladder. I think I might have talked about this stuff before. Um, and the terminology, sorry, cut as much of this out as you want. <laughs> the, the terminology um, that Elliot talked about, you know, the language. If I, if I come up with an objective, right, today, kids, we're learning about square numbers now there's two groups of kids in the class ones who think they know what they are because their dad told them and ones who go what the heck is a square number 
and they're kind of on the back foot. There's nothing there's nothing to hang that on, you know. So I'd much rather make squares out of tiles and go, well, you can make squares out of nine, but not eight or ten. I wonder why that is, you know, and then and then come to the terminology later. But yeah, I, I, I think I definitely having listened to everyone, I, I would change it to today's big idea. You know, and get them to the point where they wanted to know what today's big idea was. That would be my my optimum. Yeah, if they were if they were excited to know what the big idea was, then I think then I think maybe we're we're maybe somewhere along the right lines. With my coherence hat on, I'm thinking something like maths, which you know you can distill to you know some, some fundamental big ideas. Perhaps you know those when you use real minute uh, learning objectives, the big ideas are lost within those. Whereas if you just called addition for all the things that you did that included addition, that idea is potentially could be far clearer. And I mean, you know, you're doing that for when it comes to adding fractions, when it comes to adding you know, decimals, when it comes to you know, teaching uh, you know, additions through bridging through 10, whatever it might be. But if you're just doing, you know, to uh, add uh, unit fractions or to add uh, fractions where the denominator is the same, and then you have another one to add fractions where the denominator is a multiple of another uh, denominator, etc. If you just call it addition, then actually maybe children will far are far more likely to see that consistent element of what addition actually is, rather than just being a you know a symbol that has two lines in it and oh yeah I do this and that means I do that I don't know just thinking out loud there because what Andrew said made me think which is why I love doing this I, I was just wanting to come back on something that Elliot said because so far we've talked about learning objectives intentions whatever you want to call them as quite benign things so there might be a tiny bit of a waste of time and a bit of a pain in the bum but they are quite yeah benign and and maybe they're a good thing and maybe they're not but actually there's two things that i think are actually really negative so when we're thinking about cost benefit this is actually you know taking uh it's bad <laughs> essentially and, and number one would be what elliot touched on slightly which is um differentiated learning outcomes now i know these are so old hat but actually having visited quite a lot of primary schools recently they're not dead they're still out there um, and i'm talking about your must should could so you're sort of all students will be able to achieve this. Your mid-level students will be able to achieve this and your gifted and talented students will be able to, you know, actually do cube numbers by the end of the lesson as well as squared numbers. And that's massively damaging to your classroom environment because you're explicitly saying that there is knowledge in this lesson or, or process in this or product in this lesson that is out of reach for certain students in this class. And that, so so then I, I think the thought occurred to someone at some point, well, what if they didn't know uh, which students in the class would be able to achieve what? So one of my favorite little um, mutant things that popped up um, when I was searching for something a while ago, I won't be too specific because I don't want to uh, upset the person who made it, was uh, must, should, could, differentiated learning outcomes, but instead of green, yellow, and red, they were blue, green, and purple, so that children wouldn't recognize that, <laughs> if they, they could meet the green one but not the purple one that was somehow there was no value judgment because they were just green and my other massive mutation on that is um maybe it was just a secondary school thing but using the nando scale of extra hot hot mild lemon and herb and i will confess i didn't qualify that long ago not long ago enough for this not to be massively embarrassing 
that I have used the Nando scale uh, before in my planning, very early on in my career. And I've said, oh, you've met the lemon and herb objective. <laughs> can we can we reach for the mild? Can we reach for the medium? Um, and then the other thing was just a quick one on dead time. So my big bugbear with writing a lesson, a learning objective in a lesson, particularly if it's long, I'm so in favour of keeping them short and basically titles with LO written in front of them, is dead time. So you can only progress in your lesson as fast as your slowest writer. So you have to wait for them to write a full sentence and quite often someone who needs prompting to pick up a pen, open the exercise book, do all this. So, so I hate dead time. I hate transition time and there's no, nothing useful you can do with that dead time. It's, it's a minute, a minute, 30, two minutes, two minutes, 30 of just pure dead time in which behavior deteriorates and no learning happens. So I just wanted to put forward that actually, although we've approached it as quite a benign topic, there are two things that I think are actually negatives that we need to consider when we're thinking about learning objectives. Just to add one more, um, you know, can it really be a learning objective if they have not at least, you know, five success criteria that then follow it on for how to meet that learning objective? That is really, really important because there will be teachers out there who have to do this. And like you say, Andrew, who they must conform because, you know, their livelihoods depend on it. And the more school leaders we can reach who will sort of accept that there is a point, but only a point if it's done sort of in a way that sort of makes it manageable for the teachers, you know, then fewer teachers will hopefully be in that situation. I think it, it's really amazing that Caleb Gatenio potentially said the quote about the, about the responsibility of the learner, Andrew, close to 70 years ago this point um I, i'm my timeline's off but i know he was sort of very active in the maybe the 50s 60s 70s um at the sort of at the sort of peak of his career but also the people that we've been talking about tonight like william and william um they talk about how you know it's the change in the learner and it's the learner's responsibility what, what they pay attention to they will remember the rest of your thought and that kind of thing so we have this sort of you know expansive understanding of the the ways the pupils can should be involved in their learning and so really the question that listeners need to ask themselves is are learning objectives an important part of that and if not can they become important or are they superfluous to our requirements and i think what you guys have done is you provided sort of really rich and varied experience on which our listeners can draw so i'm really really grateful for that and i think we've almost come to the conclusion that we must have a, an episode on differentiation because, you know, it's been spoken about quite a lot. You know, I know that knowing how your, what your practice looks like, um, you know, you won't fall into the category of having six different objectives for, for the one lesson. We should have three episodes on differentiation. Uh, one for the really intelligent teachers, um, one for the majority of teachers, and then one for the really thick teachers where we could use really short words. Okay. excellent cold drop you can either cut that out or just say irony alert in case i just get kicked off every possible forum ever sorry i'll, I'll shut up <laughs> no no what i will do is i will cut it in isolation and put it at the very start of the episode without any context at all because that's what i'd like to do to my guest <laughs> and then the theme tune will hit 
Um, but yeah, our listeners appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it's tongue in cheek, but if we, we either laugh or cry, you know. So those are our two options. And um, all that's left to do, you know, looking forward to that differentiation episode. All that's left to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed the conversation, guys. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure to be back. And thank you, Andrew. That's a joy as always, Kieran. Thanks for having me. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.